Okay, so let's reverse engineer the drag race activity. What are some rules of thumb about effective cognitive activities that can be gleaned from the Carl Fisk, I can't say his name, Fiskit John story? Number one, focus on one target participant. Most of Roger's successful activities focused on a single individual. Now, why is this effective? It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You need to design virtual activities that involve the entire community, don't you? Well, no, and yes. You create a compelling activity by tapping into the unique passions, needs, and characteristics of a single individual, and then use your creative imagination to figure out how to involve the larger community. If you try to create an activity that addresses the unique needs and interests of everyone in the community, you'll drive yourself crazy in the first place, and you'll end up pleasing no one. The activity will be diluted and fractured and will end up being lifeless. In the case of the drag race story, Roger felt that Carl Fisket John, I got it that time, was languishing because he isolated himself from the rest of the community. So even though Carl was surrounded by people, he, for whatever reason, isolated himself. He was probably lonely and felt separated from his tribe, from his community. This caused him to languish and was in danger of going into a a spiral of decline that would affect his physical health and his psychological well-being. So the entire activity was focused on getting Carl connected with the community. But Roger didn't do this by saying, Carl, you know, you really need to get out and socialize more. No, Carl was a crusty loner who wasn't going to respond to encouragement to be sociable. But he did respond to a challenge. It was a playful challenge that just might let him show off his his trusty scooter and his awesome driving skills. It was an activity that would allow him to remain a loner, yet in a social context. I mean, he didn't have to really react with anyone or interact with anyone. All he needed to do was get on his scooter and drive it faster than Marge did. Roger was able to tap into some source of inner passion within Carl. We'll talk more about how to identify these inner passions in a bit. Roger involved the entire community by first getting Marge to agree to join the race. Roger knew that Marge was outgoing, sociable, and was likely to enjoy proving that grumpy old Carl couldn't beat her in a scooter race. This was matchmaking in a sense. And then Linda, true blue, true axe, wanted in on the action. And the race wasn't held in private. It was a grand community-wide event that even extended beyond the walls of the community. Observers, audience members, members of the peanut gallery, as, as Roger likes to say, all got involved in their own way. Their emotions, thoughts, and even their bodies got involved through the act of observing and even just hearing the sounds of what was taking place. There's interesting research suggesting that we all have what are called mirror neurons in our brain. Mirror neurons might be called empathy brain cells. 
They help us to feel what other people are feeling and to get a sense of what other people are thinking. When we watch other people doing things, these mirror neurons activate regions of our brain that mirror what the other person is doing. So when we watch Carl, Marge, and Linda climb into their racing scooters, mirror neurons initiate minute impulses that stimulate the same leg movements, the bending of the body and so on, uh, in our own bodies. We feel what Carl feels as he bends his troublesome knee and adjusts his posture to minimize his back pain. When we see Carl take a deep breath in preparation for the starting gun, we feel some of Carl's nervousness and excitement. How can we activate these mirror neurons and this sense of empathy and connection with each other when we are confined to our own rooms and are isolated from each other? Well, keep in mind that we learn about each other and communicate through all of our senses. If vision is taken away, we rely more heavily on sound. We interpret how people are feeling and get a sense of what they're doing by listening to the tone of their voice. So our approach to virtual activities, in which people can't see each other, should be approached in the same way that we would approach activities with people who have visual impairment. This is nothing new for you. You just have to put yourself in the position of the person with visual impairment and imagine how they could use sound to get the richest and most fulfilling experience. And of course, visual connection is not impossible in the virtual world. There are an array of technologies that enable people to see each other in real time. The challenge will be getting your people up to speed on using and being comfortable with tools like FaceTime, Skype, and Zoom. So what's the core takeaway? We might call this one the one-for-all rule of thumb. Create your virtual activity for a single person and then figure out how to engage the entire community.